Welcome to First State Insights, offering information, perspectives, and analysis for public policy, management, and community and economic development in Delaware. Hi, everyone, and welcome to First State Insights, a podcast presented by the Institute for Public Administration. My name is Troy Mix, and I'm Associate Director at the Institute, which is a research and public service center in the University of Delaware's Biden School of Public Policy and Administration. We call ourselves IPA for short. Thanks for tuning in today. On today's episode, we're joined by John Collins, who is co-founder of the First State FinTech Lab and a partner with FS Vector, an advisory firm helping fintech, regtech, and financial institutions build successful businesses. John is also a fellow alumnus of the University of Delaware's Biden School of Public Policy and Administration, where we co-taught a course on innovation in the public sector this past spring semester. In 2019, John and I partnered with the Delaware Prosperity Partnership to co-author Delaware and a Fintech Future, a report that chronicled Delaware's position within the fintech landscape while outlining opportunities for continued industry growth and financial services innovation in Delaware. John and I spoke on April 24, 2020. We covered definitions of fintech, economic opportunities for Delaware, and the potential roles for financial services innovation in the response to and recovery from COVID-19. Let's get to the conversation. So thanks for joining me today, John. Appreciate you taking some time this afternoon. Could you give me a little sense of what fintech is? for starters, and why we should all care about it? Yeah, so I think people probably hear the term fintech a lot, depending on what circles they, they run in, I guess. And it's, you know, it, this is going to be a basic answer, and it's not a cop-out. It's just, it is this simple, I think. It's the delivery of financial services through technology. You know, banking and, and other financial services have really been tr- traditionally, historically, community-driven for a number of different reasons. And obviously, technology allows access to people in ways that that you know weren't weren't possible before. And you know, fintech um, really means the delivery of financial s- services through technology, being the internet. You know, ATMs are certainly fintech. Credit cards are certainly fintech. But really, the the popularity, I guess, of the term and the explosion in interest and investment. Came because people had access to the world via the computer, and then and then the mobile phone obviously changed everything. So that's that's what people are talking about, you know, when they when they say fintech. And how did you get engaged um, in fintech? How did you become in the industry? I guess. So I worked. I grew. You know, I grew up in Delaware. What went to UD and went to the had the opportunity to go work for. Um, Senator Carper in, in DC on the Homeland Security Committee in the Senate and did a number of different things there. But one of the things that I uh, got to work on, because I, I did a lot of special projects and investigations and oversight related things. And so one of the things that I was able to work on was around digital currencies. Now, this was back in 2013. So, you know, not that long ago, but, you know, like a century and in Bitcoin and uh, blockchain uh, years, I guess. And so, you know, we did some of the first congressional work on the subject, had the first hearing. I got really deep uh, in the blockchain, digital currency, Bitcoin world, both on the regulatory side, law enforcement side, but also industry and investment side. So 
you know, spent over a year on it and then had an opportunity to go work for, for Coinbase, which is, um, a digital currency company based out of San Francisco, which, uh, you know, they, they are a wallet service and a, and a brokerage and an exchange service. Now the, the most popular in the U.S. at that time, they were, they were very small. It was like employee number 50, I think. So I think people in, who know this space know them, but still, I think most people don't. But back then, really nobody knew who they were. Um, so I had an opportunity to go work for them, uh, and, and did public policy work for them and split my time between Washington and San Francisco, uh, working with state regulators and, um, Policymakers in Washington and Europe and, and elsewhere, kind of explaining what Bitcoin was, explaining what Coinbase was, what we we're trying to do, and you know, in some cases, trying to help them figure out, okay, well, how is this going to be regulated? Is it going to be regulated? If so, what aspects of it are going to be regulated? So that's uh, that's what got me into the the you know the financial technology industry um, was really through that vertical. Senator Carper's office generally was interested in this because of. The large Delaware Financial Services is that kind of how it came to your plate? Or no? no, no. Really, the angle was you know with the Homeland Security Committee. It's the the full title of it is uh, the U.S. Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, which you know it was created after nine eleven. Was an amalgamation of a bunch of different things. There had been a Governmental Affairs Committee prior to that, but uh, the joke about his GAC, which is the um, not so attractive sounding uh, acronym for it is that it has jurisdiction over nothing and jurisdiction over everything. So you kind of have to take what you want to take, <laughs> like you know, uh, jurisdiction over or, or um, you know what you want to look at. And and so for in the case of digital currencies, I had read an article about um, Bitcoin in the New Yorker a few years before that, and. Thought it was interesting. You know, I've always been really interested in, I guess, internet subcultures of various sorts and uh, subcultures in general. And so that was definitely one. It still is one, but I didn't do anything. I didn't buy any Bitcoin. I didn't get involved in any way. Um, but when uh, we were looking for sort of new projects, it was back in the news for some reason or another. I can't remember if it was a price rise or crash or something else. And no one else in Congress had done anything on it. So, you know, it wasn't that exciting to people or, or well-known, um, which is oftentimes how, you know, you can actually get to work on stuff because nobody else wants to, um, not because it's anything really that people think is great. And so that's really where it, where it came from. Uh, the fact that no one else had worked on it and because there were big implications for national security from, um, the dark net markets like Silk Road, which were operating at the time and, um, money laundering generally. As well as the governmental affairs piece, which is if you do have this massively game changing technology that, that is going to, to just uh, change everything. How is the whole of government responding to it? How should it respond to balance innovation with, um, uh, you know, protecting consumers and, and the other considerations? So that's how it actually came into play. It really had nothing to do with Delaware or, or the financial services. Yeah, I can remember it getting attention because I wasn't living in Delaware at the moment, but I heard Senator Carper on NPR talking about it. So it was definitely novel at that time. But it, as you kind of talked about, it was framed negatively at that time in terms of the national security implications and, you know, buying drugs online and all kinds of other things. Um, but pretty quickly in a matter of years, I mean, you wrote, it would look like 2017, you wrote what I called the Peaches op-ed, 
yeah. the news journal, yeah. Uh, yeah. where it kind of framed this space as an opportunity for Delaware. What is it about, you know, how the industry evolved, how, you, you know, your experience in it uh, and what you understand about Delaware that led you to, to write that piece? So I think it was a, a few things. I mean, you know, I'm, I am kind of a Delaware history nerd, um, I guess. And so I think it was from my work in perspective of, you know, where I'd been at Coinbase and, and just generally it was very clear to me that we were kind of getting to this next generation of financial services that was really fundamentally changing. And because of that was necessitating entirely new regulatory regimes or interpretations of regulatory regimes. And so, you know, the board was kind of being thrown up in the air. And so when you have that happen, then obviously people start figuring out ways to take an advantageous position on the board. Uh, in, in Delaware, you know, I knew enough about you know, Delaware's history with um, the Financial Center Development Act uh, under uh, Governor DuPont to know that that's exactly what they did with when the idea of credit card banks and, and uh, you know, other kind of new financial services uh, uh, vehicles and, and instruments were coming into play. And just seeing what other countries and states were, were talking about and doing, uh, you know, it, it seemed clear to me that that there was an opportunity and frankly a need for Delaware to take some leadership here to continue its, its position and, and, you know, hopefully gain a, gain more from it, but certainly to make sure they didn't lose out. So that's, that's really what, what, you know, my understanding of kind of where the industry was and also my understanding of like where Delaware's strengths and history had been made it seem like a, a, a valuable, um, you know, a valuable discussion. And what steps, like kind of, if any, have you taken uh, in Delaware since then, or what was the feedback to that op-ed? Yeah, no, I think you know there was. There, I was really, you know, I shouldn't have been surprised because I, I think I know Delaware pretty well, but it was really, really positive. Uh, you know, I think you know, I think we got connected then. I got connected to to Megan Wallace and a number of other folks who you know we ended up starting the the first state fintech lab. You know, it was really a wide range of folks from government, non-government, and and elsewhere who were all thinking the same thing, or all at the very least thinking, you know, look, what's next for Delaware? You know, what's the next industry? What's the next thing? Um, and there was a feeling it might still be that uh, there needs to be one, or there isn't one. Uh, I think it's a little more complicated than that, but that uh, the response was 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 great, and so you know. With that, we, we talked to a bunch of different folks about the idea of putting together a regulatory sandbox, which was one of the ideas that, you know, I had proposed in there as a way that Delaware could show some leadership and just show some competitive advantage, kind of using its ability to get things done quickly and nimbly. Nothing came of that specifically, but what did come from it was the first state fintech lab, which, you know, we created as a really a convening body to bring together industry and academia and regulators and Folks from outside Delaware to support the state's, you know, further development of the fintech ecosystem, and you know, we do that by focusing on uh, workforce development, um, expanding access to opportunities, so that if and when we do lead the country and, and maybe the world in this sector, that everyone is at the table to take advantage of that opportunity, and then um, that uh, you know, we we create a safe space that the regulators and industry can talk to one another and and share 
you know, needs and, and best practices and information. So that's, that was the, you know, end result. Jumping ahead from kind of the history of, you know, your initial involvement in fintech and then the first state fintech lab, you know, now we're in this crisis situation and I know you're, could you tell us a little about FS Vector and then kind of, I feel like you've been recording a lot of podcasts on kind of uh, financial services generally, but also fintech and their role in the crisis recovery. Uh, could you just kind of describe for us kind of a little bit of the thought around how this impacts fintech, what role fintech can have in the recovery, what the chatter is like out there? Yeah, I mean, so yeah, so FS Sector is my you know full time job. You know, we're uh, you know myself and um, uh, well, Raj Date, who's a former CFPB director, among among many other um, amazing accomplishments, and uh, a guy named John Betcha, who um, was former general counsel at Circle Internet Financial, which is another um, large Bitcoin digital currency related enterprise in Boston. They founded the firm and asked me to help. Help them get it started back about two years ago, and, and we advise financial technology companies and banks uh, around all kinds of different things, uh, but primarily business advisory, compliance, you know, related issues, and then you know, policy uh, related matters, primarily you know, at the at the U.S. federal level and and some kind of international work. And so we work, we work with all kinds of different companies from, from cryptocurrency companies to enterprise blockchain companies to lenders and payments and, you know, what you call, I guess, quote unquote, traditional banks, you know, everybody in between. So yeah, you know, we've got a, I've got a podcast called Finance Rewired and we interview regulators and politicians and, um, industry types and academics about financial technology policy, which is a very niche issue, uh, niche audience, but, it's a great thing about the internet. There's tons of niches out there. And I think with the current economic crisis, you know, there's kind of two things that have revealed themselves. One is that, you know, a big part of the relief, ongoing relief for businesses is the paycheck protection program and some of these other SBA programs. And so the most comparable thing, even though they're very different, is the financial crisis 10, 11 years ago, um, 12 years ago. And things are very different now. Like fintech, as we know it today, just like did not exist back then. And so you have all of these platforms that have customers and that have access to customers that can provide loans. And so the SBA is is utilizing them along with you know good old fashioned banks to get as much money up to businesses as possible, so that they can hopefully keep themselves running and keep their employees on the payroll. So. You're seeing that infrastructure that's been built over the past 10 years after the financial crisis, which, you know, we don't have to get on the rabbit hole, like why fintech in part developed because of the financial crisis. But, you know, it, it played no small part in the development of it, along with the mobile phone. That's one piece, you know, utilizing infrastructure to get out money. And then I think the other sort of more, um, maybe, maybe more macro piece is when we're talking about getting out individual stimulus payments to folks, are checks the best way that we can do that now? You know, I remember when, um, before the last financial crisis 12 years ago, I remember when, when, um, George W. Bush sent out those stimulus payments and those were checks for the most part, I think maybe some direct deposit too. Uh, but things are really different now than they were, there were then. So there, there are a lot of other ways that people interact with money. 
there are Square Cash wallets and there is PayPal wallets and Venmo and um, all different flavors of, of debit cards, some electronic and, and some physical Bitcoin wallets, you know, just right, name, name the product. And so, you know, if, if the idea here is to get money to people as quickly as possible so that they can spend it as quickly as possible, are checks the best way to do it? Or, or is even direct deposit necessarily the best way to do it? I think the answer is no. And I think a lot of other people think that is too. So the, the, the chatter, I guess, to, as a long winded answer to your question is around, uh, okay, is there a way, if not right now, the next time that hopefully this, is not needed that we can utilize some of this infrastructure that people utilize in their daily lives and know really well to get them money instantly so that they can start using it to, you know, sustain themselves and their families. Uh, and I do think, you know, uh, I do think by the end of this, we will have a better sense of that. And if, and God hope we don't have something like this happen again, but if we do in five or 10 years or something, I do think it the rails that we, the government will be using to get money to people will be entirely different. Yeah. Do you have a sense of like who gets checks? I mean, I didn't get a check. I got a direct deposit. What percentage are getting checks? And then the follow up would be, um, what, what are the options that are better than direct deposit for people? You think, or why would they be better? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, some, you know, some people don't have banks, right? I mean, some, so, you know, the underbanked and, and that's a whole different, Issue that you know, I'm certainly not going to say that a digital wallet will necessarily solve for that, but um, I don't know the percentages offhand. Um, but you know, the vulnerable populations are the people you'd expect, or the underbanked, or or um, the um, totally unbanked. Um, there are people that you know um, haven't provided direct deposit information to the IRS for whatever reason. You know, again, separating from from direct deposit, like checks themselves, especially in an environment when separate the, the, how long it takes to get checks to people physically, then get them to cash. You have a situation now where people not only are not advised to go out of their homes, but are in some cases like compelled not to go out of their homes. So, you know, going to a check casher or to a bank to be able to access and use those funds is just in, like impossible in some cases. So, you know, if you have a populace that for the most part, everyone has a smartphone or there's massive, massive penetration of smartphone technology. And they understand how Venmo works. And this is not an endorsement of Venmo, but something like that. Then, you know, couldn't we utilize that or figure out some way to do it? And I think there's a lot of those companies that are trying to figure that out and talk about it. There's lots of proposals about doing, you know, Fed accounts. You know, everyone in the United States gets a, you know, a, a Federal Reserve digital account subscribed to themselves, which is a you know a more controversial issue, but um, it's just changed you know the conversations that were already happening around the evolution of personal peer to peer payments. It has amped up because of this because it really has shown the limitations of our current payment system and how slow and inefficient it can be. And I think because this crisis has moved so, 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 so quickly because of just the fact that it's a pandemic, uh, you know, that, that is all the more just shown the cracks in, in, in what we've got. So if we looked internationally, I mean, I don't know, I don't know uh, what stimulus programs have looked like elsewhere, but in terms of how the government gets money to people, is that radically different in other countries? 
Yeah, so it's interesting. The actually the um, and I wish I had read it now before uh, before uh, talk. But I have on my um, I actually have. I just opened it up a tab open on my you know. So having a tab open is basically like I read it. Yeah. Um, for the uh, IMF, they have a whole special series of of policy papers they're putting out. Anyway, they put out one just this past week called Digital Solutions for Direct Cash Transfers in Emergencies. And so they actually do talk about sort of what other countries can do, but also like what are current um, available solutions and technologies that could be considered, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I have not read that yet, but I think my guess is that answers your question in there. Um, and it also is evidence, again, that there is a recognition that there are probably better ways and, and more digital native ways to, to do what has traditionally been done in, um, you know, using technology that you know, in the case of ACH, direct deposit is well over 20 plus years old. And in the case of um, checks is, you know, well over that. So and thinking about the unbanked, I mean, I know, like thinking about countries where telephone took a while to come to them, for example, you just jump over wired telephones and go to cellular phones is some of the thinking that there's real opportunities to jump those unbanked from working in the Czech ACH world to working in the Venmo world? Yeah, no, for sure. No, for sure. Especially as, um, you know, cause I, I mean, look, I'm, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert at the, at the unbanked or underbanked. I mean, there's tons and tons and tons of, of reasons why populations in this country are, um, you know, are classified as such. And a lot of it has to do with institutional racism and, and other sorts of, of things that have happened throughout the country's history. But if you do have, if you are moving from a system where the system is underpinned by physical locations, right. To a system that is underpinned by a 10, you know, whatever, a $10 device or however far down you can get the costs of a, a smartphone, then the, the problem set changes, right? It's it's not necessarily an infrastructure cost question. It's it's um it leads to other sorts of, of things that probably need to be dealt with. So it's it's theoretically an easier problem to solve, I guess, but with acknowledgement that it is still a very complex issue. Sure. Uh, I want to go to the one point you made, the second point you made about the chatter in the industry, which you know the one we just talked about is getting people their money. The other piece you talked about is the landscape's changed a whole lot in terms of there's all these non-bank lenders, mm -hmm. um, which incidentally Marketplace was talking about that too. So it's in your niche, and then on the broader oh, nice. of economic news, that that's kind I of love Marketplace. <laughs> um, Hi, Rizdal. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Great, I love him. Yeah. How you know Delaware's traditional banking center, financial services center? How has the landscape in Delaware changed over the past eleven years in terms of you know, is it small banks, big banks, a better mix that or different mix than it was 10, 11 years ago? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, you've got, uh, you know, Delaware's got a really rich tradition in fintech as well as it does, you know, credit card banks. Um, which again, credit cards are a financial technology development. But, uh, you know, you look at ING Direct. A massively successful bank, even digital bank. You look at the, the some of the startups they're in that in Delaware now, Marlette Funding, which is an online lender, Fair Square Financial, which is a 
uh, you know, credit card issuer, but with a, a massive, massive tech and, and data focus to it. College Square or College um, College Avenue student loans, which is a student loan lender. So you've got this this whole startup startup ecosystem in the state too around financial technology and others. You know, Acorns, which is a really well known fintech app and company, and they decided to base their East Coast operations in, in Delaware, uh, in Wilmington. So, so yeah, so you've got, you've got all these, you know, different folks that are operating and then, you know, even the ones that are, are local, um, you know, I think do a pretty good job of, of offering financial services in their own right under, under their own platforms. Cause banks, you know, very much are partners with many of these, you know, non-bank fintechs, but they also have some pretty sophisticated, um, financial technology offerings on their own. So some of what you were writing about in 2017. It was happening then, and it's continuing to happen now because Delaware is a, a, still a center of financial services. Is that fair to say? Oh yeah, for sure, yeah. absolutely. Do you? I mean, you said the fundamentals are still there. For if you were to rewrite that again today, would you have you know similar aspirations that uh, this is something Delaware can rally around, or is it a little different than when you wrote it in 2017? Because of COVID, or because of just generally. Well, the industry's played out a little bit, but maybe in part it's because of COVID. You know, where does it go from here now? Yeah, no, I, I, that's, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I think, um, so I, uh, I think the fundamentals are still the same. I think Delaware still has a very business friendly environment. Uh, it has a, a government because it's small that, that, you know, is, is pretty relatively easy, I think, to get things done and it, easy access to decision makers and, and decision makers that are supportive of business on the whole. You know, I think what, what Delaware also has really going for it is the talent pool here, which is, is due in large part to the fact that it has been a financial center for so long. You know, you talk to some folks like the leaders of the companies that I mentioned earlier, and they'll tell you one of the reasons that they started their companies and operate their companies in Delaware versus any other place in frankly the whole country, right? Because these businesses are on the internet and they can really put them anywhere they want is the, the access to talent of, of people who really especially know consumer credit products. Um, it's just, you know, there's, you know, these things are take a lot of expertise and, and, and these industries are specific. And so that talent pool that's here is really, really good at those products. So that certainly hasn't gone away. And, um, you know, as long as we sustain those businesses and those types of businesses here, it won't go away. But, you know, where, where Delaware falls off, right? I mean, you know, it, again, because it's getting more competitive, states are playing regulatory, re- regulatory arbitrage, countries are playing regulatory arbitrage. You know, you have to always be mindful, okay, like what's, what is the regulatory state of play? I think you also have to be mindful of all of the, quality of life things that go into a person's decision to move somewhere, um, which is, you know, especially folks who listen to this, who I know are, are economic development focused, know this <laughs> better than anybody, you know, the schools, the, the things that go into making a place livable are, are really, really important. And I think that's where Delaware to some cannot be as attractive as other places. And then I think, uh, the access to engineering talent and to uh, venture capital, which again is something that is you know 
people here everywhere all the time. It's, I mean, it's everywhere. It's like, unless you're in San Francisco or New York, it's like, yeah, it's just, you're going to struggle with that. So, um, you know, I don't know if there's a solution for that necessarily, but, but I do think, and then I will stop talking. I do think it will be interesting. And we've talked a little bit about this before, how this will affect people's desire to live in expensive urban centers versus places that are cheaper and uh, allow for <laughs> social distancing. Sure. Um, and that, and especially now if we have a society that is proven that it can work from home and keep productivity up and companies that realize that commercial real estate is expensive. And it'll be interesting to see if Delaware and other places like Delaware are able to take advantage of that if there is an advantage to be taken. But, yeah, I mean, that's always been, you know, you can go anywhere in the country and they have an economic development map where they draw circles on the map and show how close they are to big places. Yeah. Uh, but it's very true in the case of Delaware that we're, you know, right along I-95, close to D.C., Philadelphia, New York City, close enough, uh, but have a much lower density of population, opportunities for rural living close to that kind of activity. So, yeah, I think that's a really... <laughs> Good point. And you saw a lot of people trying to disappear from those major metro areas as this all unfolded, for sure. Yeah. So it seems, sounds like the talent's the big thing that's, um, you know, a big advantage for Delaware right now. And then there's potential for some strategic actions around improving the situation or keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak. Yeah. And then there's like additional things that fintech creates the need for, like engineering and Finance didn't always go together, I suppose, before fintech became a thing. Is that fair to say? Yeah, no, for, yeah, for sure. Um, and I think, you know, and, and some of it you can outsource on the engineering side, but it is always better to, you know, I think most businesses would prefer to have people together, uh, on their, on their teams. So yeah, I mean, all that stuff really, really does go together in a way that, um, you know, maybe didn't need that full suite in the same way that you do today. So speaking, you know, we don't have to think just about fintech here, but, you know, you're an example of someone who's felt the persistent pull of Delaware, it would seem like, you know, you were, you know, working in DC, San Francisco, but you've come back to Delaware. You know, what is it that you see about Delaware that gives you kind of the most hope for recovery? I know we're still kind of in the thick of it, but what makes you most hopeful? I think, you know, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I keep getting pulled back. It's like what uh what's the it's the mafia movie? Is that what it's like? It's like uh <laughs> you know, I was out. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No. No. Um look, what I talked about in terms of Delaware's positive traits, and there are many, many, many of them. I, it, those core things do not appear to be going away. Like, you know, Delaware is going to continue to be small. It's going to continue to, I think, have um, you know, really good leaders that are accessible to people, whether industry or otherwise. I think it's going to, you know, I am not of the belief currently that this is going to just crater us as a country forever. Like I think, you know, who knows, but it's going to be tough and weird for a while. But, you know, I think we're going to bounce back and, uh, you know, I don't see, you know, those core capabilities of, of talent and, uh, you know, other things that, that have allowed for, um, for these businesses to be successful here, you know, are, are going to go away at all. So, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's what, that's what gives me hope. I mean, Delaware's seen a lot over like many places, but, but, um, 
we've seen a lot of really big, we've always been lucky in that like we've had a, uh, we've had a benefactor, right? I mean, it was DuPont for so, so, so long. And um, obviously DuPont still employs a lot of people, but not nearly what they did or per capita what they did, you know, back at the turn of the century for sure. Um, then you had MBNA to a certain smaller degree, but to a large degree too. And, and so you don't have anything like that now and you probably never will, which it maybe gets to my um, ultimate beyond fintech thing, which is like, I think everybody needs to find their little thing and they just need to push it and expand it and grow it as much as possible. Cause like, uh, no one's coming to save you. Like there's not going to be somebody or something that's going to come and just take care of the state. People are going to need to build their small businesses and keep them going and hopefully to mid-sized businesses. And if we're lucky, large businesses, but you know, it's going to be the, the, you know, hundred people at college Ave or the, you know, 50 people at, Whatever company that that's gonna you know keep the state growing, and I think if if we keep our mind towards that kind of focus instead of looking for all these silver bullets, then I think that'll serve us well. So the next big thing becomes a lot of smaller, smaller medium-sized things, at least. Right. Right. Well, thank you, John, for that and for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks, Troy. Always, you know, it's always good to talk to you. So I, I always appreciate an opportunity to do that. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks, Rick. As a reminder to listeners, this episode was recorded on April 24th, 2020. For more on fintech and John's work, follow him on Twitter at John Collins. Search for FS Vector in the First State Fintech Lab on the web, or consult the show notes to access our joint report with the Delaware Prosperity Partnership on fintech. That's all we have for this episode. I'm Troy Mix from the University of Delaware, IPA. To learn more about IPA, you can visit us at bidenschool.udel.edu slash IPA. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope you join us again soon for more First State Insights.